Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Uh, you're all in a very powerful position. You get to choose which candidates you support through endorsements, through your volunteer efforts, and through expressing your preferences as a voice within the party. My message to you today is to make sure you exercise that choice. I encourage you to do the research, use that voice, and those efforts to, your full, to their fullest potential. Those choices are an expression of our values. Make sure that we're living our values by throwing our support behind candidates that support them. We're the party that supports working families. So make sure that the candidates you're supporting are looking out for working families here in Washington. Make sure at a time when medical bills are the number one cause of bankruptcy in America, and at a time when 30 million people are uninsured in this country, that the candidates you're supporting are putting their full weight behind Medicare for all and providing health care to everyone because health care is a human right. While online shoppers around the country flocked to Amazon's mega-sale Prime Day this week, the retail giant faced growing outrage from protesters, workers, and lawmakers for its unsafe working conditions, collaboration with immigration and customs enforcement, and anti-competitive and anti-union business practices. In New York City, activists delivered the petition to the home of Amazon's CEO, Jeff Bezos. Demonstrators in Seattle delivered a petition with over 270 thousand signatures to Amazon headquarters, calling out its exploitation of workers and demanding it stop working with ICE. This week on the podcast, I'm speaking with Jason Call, who is running in Congressional District in Washington State, District Number 2. He's a Democratic Socialist and an ex-public uh, school teacher. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. I appreciate uh, being on your show. Right on. So I wanted to start off talking with you about the time you've spent serving on the Washington State Democratic Party Central Committee. I think you've been there for a few years. You might still be on it. But in your tenure there, you've been able to pass some pretty progressive resolutions. Uh, what I wanted to ask you about was the one that dealt with the DCCC blacklisting can uh, vendors working with candidates that were challenging incumbents. I believe they were trying to unfairly target progressive challenges to sitting incumbents. And if you were a vendor and you wanted to work with any of these progressive challenges, uh, you would be put on a blacklist and you would not be hired for any of the DCCC candidates. Um, tell me a little bit about that. That is correct. Um, the DCCC put out a policy that they were going to, um, that any vendors, uh, campaign consultants and whatnot who, uh, chose to work with, um, uh, challengers to sitting incumbents, uh, mm -hmm. which is exactly what I am doing, right. um, that, uh, they will blacklist those vendors and not allow them access to any other, um, opportunities for, for work, um, within the party. Which is so wrong. Uh, you know, and it also bothers me that oftentimes the incumbents get automatic endorsements from the state parties. Um, I don't know if that's true in Washington state, but it's something we've been sort of trying to change the rules on here in California. Um, how does that work in Washington? Well, right now, um, they they don't, um, it's not called an endorsement, um, but 
gives the, the, there's a thing I forget what it's called. Oh, I also wanted to say that I'm I'm still on the state committee. I still huh. represent okay. um, my my legislative district, the 44th legislative district, on the state committee. Um, but um, it's it's not called an endorsement, but it is called something else, and I forget what the term okay. is because okay. there's there's some kind of arcane rule. That if if a candidate were to die sometime between the primary, um, uh, the, the candidate on the ballot, sometime between the primary and actually the general election, mm-hmm. that the state party would need to take control of who the replacement candidate with, was, and they mm-hmm. can't do that unless the candidate is. Again, it's not an endorsement. But essentially, it is a tacit endorsement. They do right. say, "Oh, we're not, we're not endorsing." Um, and this came up last year um, when Sarah Smith, if you remember, Sarah Smith challenged uh, sitting Representative Adam Smith, uh, right. who is uh, chair of the uh, Armed Services Committee uh, here uh, for at the national level, right. and. Um, and I actually had one of one of the agitation things that I have done at the state party was I was trying to get her um, vote builder access, mm-hmm. and the party refused to give her vote builder a- access, mm-hmm. even though she had gotten past the primary. And so wow. there's only two Democrats on the primary: it was Adam Smith and Sarah Smith. Um, they they said it would be a slap in the face to Adam Smith, who has worked with the party and shows up to the meetings, and um, that Sarah had not done the work uh, to grant her access. And um, but at that same meeting, um, they had given all of the other candidates this forget the word. I wish I knew the word, but not endorsement. Essentially, a tacit endorsement. Um, and I tried to get them not to give it to Adam. So I actually made a motion that said, I, I move that we pull Adam Smith's name from this round of passive endorsements. Right. Um, and so there was a, there was kind of a floor fight over that, but, mm. uh, it, it, it yeah. didn't, it didn't fly. Um, and so Adam Smith got the passive endorsement. Yes. Um, okay. and right now I will say in my, in my own race, uh, against uh, Rick Larson. Rick Larson is a 20-year sitting Democrat. Yeah, he's uh, been there the since state party, like 2000. He's been there forever. He was elected in 2000, took office in January 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, but the state party is now, in fact, I just got an email because uh, I'm on his emailing list, I, and, and I'm also obviously on the email list for the state party um, as a member. And uh, I just got a, an email that uh, the state party is helping him host a uh, fundraising event uh, in, in my district here um, in Everett. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of those $100 plates, um, you know, it's down. Anyway, yeah. So they are, they are definitely um, for sure getting behind the incumbents. Um, I challenged the state party chair uh, um, for her chair position back in January and she uh, has taken issue with me over that ever since uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, so they're, they're coming out strongly in favor of Rick Larson but the you know the 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 ridiculous part of that is is uh, Rick Larson is a corporate Democrat right. um, and our, our party platform is a very progressive platform and I know mm-hmm. because I worked on um, a lot of it uh, back in 2018 and I support uh, the platform almost fully, and uh, he takes money from the industries that the platform claims uh, that we are trying to oppose. Um, mm-hmm. So, 
you know, the, the party wants to claim that they are uh, the party that stands up for working people, but the reality is that they are supporting candidates with D behind their name who do not stand up for working people. Yeah, we have a lot of this, uh, similar issues here in California for that. You know, and part of it is that both the state of Washington and the state of California are, I mean, we are pretty progressive states, but I would say the majority of the Democratic Party leadership in both states is absolutely not progressive. A lot of them are what I would consider to be conservative Democrats. They're more beholden uh, to money. Oh, absolutely. Right, they want to preserve the status quo. They want to protect the rich people in the state. Um, you know, and both of our states yep. have very severe income inequality because of the tech industry. So, absolutely. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's really and and in Washington State, we don't we don't have state income tax in Washington State, so the billionaires right. love to be. I mean, we've got Bezos and Gates yeah. here um, in 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 the Seattle area, and they love to be here because they right. don't have to pay any income taxes. Right. Um, but you're, I want to say you're right about um, we have uh, ten representatives, we have ten legis- uh, uh, congressional districts in Washington. Mm-hmm. Seven of them are now held by Democrats, and we only have one actual progressive, and that's Pramila Jayapal in uh, Congressional District 7. Good morning, everybody. My name is Pramila Jayapal. I'm proud to represent Washington's 7th Congressional District and to be the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And I want to start just by thanking Senator Sanders, who back in 2015 was the only person at the federal level, at the national level, talking about a real solution for the student debt crisis. It was a part of my campaign at that time. I was in the Washington State Senate. And I quickly, when I came to Congress, was proud to stand with the senator as we introduced last cycle's College for All uh, bill. And we are now today, it is sizzling hot today, and this is a sizzling hot proposal. And I'm looking at all these young people's faces over here and seeing the incredible hope and opportunity that exists when we pass this proposal. All of the others are these third-way um, New Democrat coalition Democrats. Every single one of them is part of the, the New Democrats. Um, uh, Rick Larson that I'm challenging. Um, Derek Kilmer uh, down in Congressional District 6, he is actually the chair of the New Democrats Coalition. So um, for being a progressive uh, state, we absolutely do not have progressive representation in Congress. No, it's really frustrating. And you guys do have a very progressive party platform. Like if you look at all of these other indications, you're like, how is this feasibly happening? Well, it's happening because the party is putting their thumb on the scale. And they're trying to protect oh, their wealthy donors over at the expense of everybody else. But I don't know how much longer this is going to fly. I don't, you know, it's that whole, um, they have money, we have people. You know, we're seeing that in real right. time. You know, there's more of us than there are of them. And I think people are pretty uh, pretty angry and they're seeing it for what it is. Um, right. Speaking of, you had a second important resolution um, that you worked on, and that was a rejection of corporate PAC money in the state, um, and specifically from yep. the health insurance industry. Industry, right? It, correct. So I'm I'm a board member of the volunteer organization Whole Washington, and our goal is to bring single payer uh, health care to Washington State. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a bill. Um, that has been uh, analyzed by Gerald Friedman, who is the same person who analyzed the Medicare for All bill at the national level. Mm-hmm. 
Um, we've had the funding mechanism vetted by our um, state treasury department, and they said, yes, this is a viable funding mechanism. Um, we tried to get it passed as an initiative in 2018, and we didn't get enough signatures because we're a volunteer-run organization, and um, it takes really it takes staff to do that, and we just didn't have the staff and the volunteers to do it. We then had a state senator pick it up um, and try to get it through um, the state legislature, um, but it didn't even get out of committee. And in digging around with who is the chair in the Washington State Legislature of the House and Senate Health Committees, uh, we found out that both of those chairs take bags of money from the industry. Um so so in light of in light of that, in light of the failure of our bill to even get a hearing, um at, at, in the Senate, um, I wrote the resolution that we should reject um, uh, corporate money from uh, PACs involving the healthcare industry, the health insurance industry, um, anything that is for profit, the pharmaceutical industry, mm-hmm. and that that resolution passed 100%. Um, now, if you know anything about resolutions, they don't mean anything right. unless. We, you have people who are willing, you know, it's a statement of values, but unless you have people willing to hold the, the uh, candidates accountable, then the resolutions really don't mean anything. But it's on the books, um, and, and we'll see if it has an impact in the upcoming elections. I, I as a candidate, have uh, already pledged to take no corporate PAC money whatsoever. Um, I know that uh, the incumbent is certainly not going to do that. In fact, he's got about $400,000 in the bank right now, and, uh, you know, he's, he's stumping for more money. Um, so, yeah, this, as, as progressive candidates, this is, this is really what we're up against. Yeah. Um, I, have, I have been endorsed by the Progressive Caucus of the Washington State Democratic Party, mm-hmm. um, and so I'm hoping to get some um, uh, play, I guess, out of, out of that endorsement. Um, I've, got, I've got other, in, uh, other progressive endorsements coming as well, and so I'm hoping to activate um, the, you know, progressive base, youth, um, labor, and, um, have those people working for me, uh, and, and, uh, promoting my campaign, but it's certainly not going to come from, um, the establishment. They're going to be fighting me every step of the way. hundred percent. So let's talk about, uh, Rick Larson for a second. He is an incumbent who has been there since 2000. So a really long time. What are, um, and he's yeah. obviously a corporate Democrat. What are some of the m- most important platform differences between you and Rick? Um, well, uh, I'll say again, I take no corporate PAC money. Um, uh, I am as a progressive and as, and as uh, specifically a Bernie Sanders progressive. I want to make sure that people understand that, that um, I um, have listened to Bernie since he was on uh, brunch with Bernie with Tom Hartman. And- Our first hour, as always on Friday, the man I think of as America's senator, uh, does, does just a wonderful job of representing all of us who, who really care about the future of this country. The independent, he's neither a Democrat or a Republican, the independent from the great state of Vermont, Senator Bernie Sanders, and uh, his website, of course, sanders.senate.gov. Bernie, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Tom. Great to have you here for Brunch with Bernie. And when he announces a candidate, right. um, it was drop every drop everything and what can I do to help Bernie uh, win this thing? Mm-hmm. And so I'm fully supportive of Medicare for all. I'm so fully supportive of the Green New Deal. Um, my daughter actually uh, started the uh, first environmental club at her high school. She's a junior. Um, and so I'm trying to get her and her friends um, to be more politically aware. And, and, and she's funny. She, she, she 
shows me uh, text conversations that she has with with a lot of conservative people, and she just schools them up and down um, on on environment on nice. environmental issues. Um, but you know, uh, housing justice, housing affordability is is huge. We have um, uh, half a million homeless people in this country, and I believe we need federal housing standards. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm supportive of a, a twenty dollar minimum wage. I don't think fifteen dollars an hour, especially in a state um, that is expensive to live in, like Washington. I don't think fifteen dollars an hour goes far enough. And honestly, by the time we get fifteen dollars passed at the national level, we're going to need to up it to twenty five. I mean, that's just the way um, our, our economy. Is going. Um, I, I, I support immigration justice. Um, I think what's happening at our borders is is uh, just criminal um, concentration camp, camps at our borders, um, and I also support a, uh, a vast reduction in the military budget. I think we yeah. need to close bases around the world. I think we need to um, stop. Uh, spending money on weapons manufacturers and lining pockets of the CEOs of Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, et cetera. Um, and Rick Larson is, as a, as a Democrat, he is diametrically opposed to those things. He is absolutely in the pocket of uh, Boeing. And as you know, Boeing is a huge military contractor. They're one of the biggest yeah. businesses here um, in, in the state. Um, so, uh, getting him to budge on military issues is, is not going to happen. He doesn't support the Green New Deal. Um, again, the, the things that were said about the Green New Deal, about needing to, um, reduce air travel and the pollution that air travel, um, 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 uh, produces, uh, he, uh, instantly came out against the Green New Deal because he's obviously in the pocket of Boeing. Right. Um, and, and that would that would impact their business. Um, and uh, he doesn't support Medicare for all. He has said emphatically uh, in public, uh, in meetings that I go to um, on record, he will not support Medicare for all. So he and I are vastly different candidates. Um, yeah. So how is it that Rick Larson keeps getting elected when it seems to me you're, the electorate in your district is much more progressive than that? Has there just not been a good progressive challenger? There has there has not been a good progressive challenger. um, Unfortunately, Um, he won uh, last uh, election cycle. He won against a libertarian, and ended up being a libertarian on the ballot challenging him. Not even not even a Republican, but he still won sixty seven percent of the vote. Um, and we are a D, we are a D plus 10 district. And so, uh, there's no reason that a progressive challenge, I mean, I, I honestly believe that if I can get on the ballot next to him, uh, that I will win this race. I think, um, people, the, the thing, the issue we have in Washington state, and I imagine it's the same in a lot of other states is we don't have ranked choice voting. Um, and so even when there is a progressive challenger, people are very nervous about, um, voting for that progressive challenger, they know Rick can win, um, and they don't want a Republican in office, and I can certainly understand that. Um, but it very much limits people's um, willingness to step outside of the box, and that's the really the problem that we're in. So do you folks have a closed primary process? 
No. In fact, Washington is a, is a, a strange state electorally. We are one of the only, I want to say there's three. I know Vermont's one, and I want to say there's one other state. Um, but we do not have uh, party registration. There is nobody in the eyes of the state who is uh, party affiliated. I mean, you can mm. you can voluntarily affiliate as a Democrat or Republican, but when it comes down to um, what you are registered, there is no party registration with the state. We are all independent. Okay, so, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So feasibly, it's possible, theoretically speaking, it's possible to have two Democrats on the final ballot in the general election. Absolutely, it is. In so, fact, that that's exactly what happened in uh, in Sarah Smith's race back in 2018. There was her right, and Adam okay. Smith on the ballot. So which leads me to question why people would be afraid of a sort of a split ticket situation where the Republican might win. If you're more apt to have a progressive and a conservative Dem on the ballot, just vote for the person you want the most. You know what I'm saying? I, I do know what you're saying, and and that then goes to um, what are the resources that a progressive candidate like me has to get their message out. Right. Um, so that's really what I'm I'm, I'm focusing on right now is. Uh, my, my campaign is, um, I, I'm not going to say we're on hold, but we're waiting for the November elections because, of course, we're very focused on winning some uh, local municipal uh, elections, um, school board elections, and stuff like that. But as yeah. soon as we get past this November th- um, uh, election, we are going to kick into high gear, and uh, we're going to be seeking small dollar, dollar contributions mm-hmm. um, and uh Right now, what I'm doing is I'm um, going around the district um, and I'm meeting. We I have um, five county, uh, five counties, and um, nine legislative districts mm-hmm. that are a part of congressional district two. And so I'm taking the month of October and doing um, as many meetings as I can, going Sorry. to introduce myself personally to the local party organizations um, and doing. Uh, just what I'm doing with you right now, doing media spots. Um, right. So that's my that's my focus for October. But we are going to kick into high gear with volunteers and fundraising when, uh, when November rolls rolls around. We get past that uh, those local elections. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm a I'm a big believer of knocking on doors. I think the best way for any progressive candidate to get elected is to do what AOC did: just go out there and knock on the doors. You know, it's one thing to. Yep. Um, it's one thing to have a big Twitter following or a big social media presence, and it's another thing to win a local election because those folks that um, maybe support you online probably don't live in your district, and it's really important that you touch all those individuals in your district if you want to win an election. Um, Absolutely. So that's a good that's a good plan, uh, Jason. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about housing because I know uh, the state of Washington has very bad housing situation as we do here in California. Um, A lot of homelessness, a lot of folks that are paid too little to make rent payments. So they're living in their cars, what have you. Um, Absolutely, yeah. What do you think about um, a vacancy tax? Do you think that's a good way of of tackling the problem? I am am absolutely uh, in support of a vacancy tax. Um, I have to tell you in, in my job and, and I, uh, you mentioned that I was a former public school teacher. I, yeah. I taught high school math for, for 18 years. Um, I now work for, um, an insurance company. I know gas for, I actually just do, um, commercial property inspections. Oh, okay. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, all, all I do is, 
all I do is building inspections and I make sure that they're in compliance with yeah. safety guidelines and things yeah, like yeah. that. Totally but <laughs> what I do is I, it's from where I, I go down into Seattle a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, and I inspect these new condos that are being built. Mm -hmm. Um, and these condos, these high rise condos, you know, you've got a hundred units in them. Um, and they are, uh, probably seven, 800 feet per condo. I mean, you walk into these things, they are not designed for families. They're designed for, you know, single young tech workers who don't have any pets and don't want any kids. Um, but these, these small units are going for, um, four, five hundred thousand dollars as condo units. And you're, wow. you're talking about seven, eight hundred square feet of space. Now, what that means is a lot of them don't sell right away. Um, because they're, they're really pricey. But what's really uh, valuable is the land. The land that they are on is actually more valuable than the building structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, and the price of that land is going to go up. And one of the things that I do with my job is, is I go on to um, county records a lot and mm-hmm. I can see um, the tax the taxation for the last 20 years. And in the last five or six years, the value of the land has literally doubled. It's mm-hmm. absolutely insane. It's at, so what we're looking at is we're looking at investors coming in. Um, they're buying land and a lot of times they're buying old family homes, mm-hmm. um, they're knocking down those homes, they're, they're putting up these high rises, mm-hmm. whether anybody occupies them or not, they don't care because right. the investment is, in, the investment is in the land. Mm-hmm. So if land values go up, they can then charge more and more for those condo units, even though a lot of them are just sitting there empty. So for those ones that are sitting there empty, I absolutely believe an occupancy tax is vital. Um, it will stop this sort of crazy land speculation that's going on, or at least hopefully it would curb it. But yes, in, in other words, I am in support of that. Yeah, no, I agree with you. You know, we have a lot of uh, hedge funds buying a property. That's actually a thing. I don't know that a lot of folks are aware of that. They've already tanked our banking industry. Now they're going to completely tank the housing market again. Um, yep. It's very frustrating. So uh, I wanted to ask you also about the fact that you were a founding member of the Separation of Church and State Caucus, which I think is really interesting. Tell me a little bit about that and the work that you did there and why you think it's important. Um, well, it's, it's um, the caucus system at, and we're not talking about caucus versus primary. This is a completely different right, thing. Right, right. We're talking about caucuses as in constituency caucuses, mm-hmm. groups of people, at the state party level, we have the Progressive Caucus, and we have the African American Caucus, and Jewish Caucus, and the Labor Caucus, and so on. Um, but some friends and I on the state committee um, really felt that the issues um, that were separation of church and state, and making sure that um, lawyer, uh, that our elected officials did not bring religious reasoning into our our legislation mm-hmm. uh was an important was an important um sort of sector that really gets overlooked yeah. um and so we decided to um form this caucus and it is not just the caucus of atheists and agnostics it is for even people of faith who yeah. believe that the separation of church and state is important. Absolutely. So some of the things that we are working on, and, and, and we're a very new caucus, um, and so we I, I, we have not done uh, a lot right now, but, but an example of the resolutions that we're working on is um, 
making sure uh, or it would be a resolution that um, hospitals who get government funding are not allowed to deny healthcare services based on we have a lot of you know we have um, religious a lot of hospitals are religiously affiliated right, um, exactly and and so they will denied services well we simply believe that they should not be getting any government funding if based on their religion they are going to be denying women's health care services they'll yeah. deny um abortion yeah. procedures yeah. they'll de- they'll deny bo- they will deny voluntarily uh voluntary sterilization procedures if, if, a, if a woman wants to get for instance a tubal ligation she's done having kids um that they will deny those um, services. And so, frankly, we think that's wrong, and so we are creating resolutions that would um, counter that. Again, resolutions are only as good as the people who are willing to support the legislative level, but it's a a statement of values. Yeah, which is important, and I agree with you. I don't think that seeing the validity of a separation of church and state requires being an atheist. I think it's important that people realize if you want to preserve freedom of religion, you must preserve freedom uh, tolerance. Like that means you cannot Absolutely. put the minute you preface one religion over another, you're no, you no longer have freedom of religion. You're now forcing your beliefs onto other sectors, which isn't fair. Uh, and it certainly wasn't what our country was founded on. So I thought that was really interesting because it's not something you see discussed very often. Right. Um, and interestingly enough, when we um, we got the um, to, to form a caucus, you have to get uh, 50 signatures of committee members mm-hmm. and then you have to bring it before the body and the body has to vote on it. And there was disappointingly a lot of pushback. Really? Um, in, within the party uh, about the formate about the formation of the caucus, and that if we created this caucus, it was going to alienate uh, Democratic Party members who were believers, and you know it was it was it was an uncomfortable situation just just trying to go go through getting that caucus um, process. But we uh, but we did you know we did prevail. We did get it created. But uh, I was I was surprised at the amount of pushback there was within the party. Um, for creating that caucus, just I think that there was a there was an image um, assault, yeah. you know, that people people were then afraid that you know, well they're going to look at the Democratic Party as the people who are you know, the <laughs> not not with God, <laughs> you know. Ay, Dios mio, yeah, yeah. No, I hear that. Um, anyway, bravery is good in this area because I think it needs to be discussed more, and I really do think uh, freedom of religion is an important is an important First Amendment right. Um, I want to talk with you a little bit about something that's going on with Elizabeth Warren because you are a former public school teacher. Um, okay. So there's this, this current controversy surrounding her claims in regards to her being fired um, in what, in 1972, I believe it was, when she was pregnant. There's been several news reports mm-hmm. saying that she's lying about that situation. Um, do you think that there's a problem with her story or, or something else? What are your thoughts on this? Well, I actually tweeted about this today. Um, I, I one, <laughs> <laughs> one um, as as a public school teacher, I'll tell you what she was a she was a first tier teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, she was on she was on an emergency contract. Um, she did not have the credentials to be teaching special education. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I can tell you that there is no first pe- first year teacher that is on what's called a continuing contract. So right. when you when you start preaching, you know you teach for a couple of years, and if they're and if everything goes okay, then they will offer you a continuing contract and say, okay, this contract is now indefinite. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't be uh, let go um, if there are staffing changes and stuff like that. But you would have to have to secure your employment. You would really need to have a continuing contract. So. Um, as a first-year teacher, there are many, many reasons that you might not be rehired. Right. Um, enrollment changes, um, program changes. She was in the special ed program. There could have been some changes to um, what the special ed program was that would uh, necessitate a reduction in staff. Mm-hmm. Um, their seniority, um, if somebody wanted an in-district transfer, that somebody could take that job as an in-district transfer mm-hmm. and she would be transferred out. Um, and she didn't have a credential. She did for not have. She did not have. A, no. So there's. So there's. There's a um, video out there, um, and uh, it's pretty widely available if you're scrolling through Twitter's. Um, but there's a video out there where she addresses this, and she said, "I did. I did the job um, for the time that I was there, and then." Um, I didn't have my credential, and I went back, and I took some classes to get the credential, and really what I decided is this job was not a good fit for me. So there's video of her from grade school on. And what they opened me up to was the possibility that I, too, could be a teacher. Mm -hmm. And frankly, that's when I went off. When I went off to college, the whole idea was so that I could be a teacher. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted to do. I just didn't quite know what kind of teacher I ended up Mm -hmm. becoming, so... And, and at college, what did you major in, and, and uh, uh, what were the focus of your interests? I, I came to college thinking what I was – I came to college on a debate scholarship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was 16 years old when I graduated from high school, and I got a full scholarship in debate that was room, board, tuition, books, and a little mm-hmm. spending money. I, it was a fabulous <laughs> scholarship at George Washington University uh, if I would debate for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was sort of – the equivalent of an athletic scholarship, only uh, this was one that a, actually a girl could get. And um, even though there weren't very many girls in debate either, um, I was going to be a teacher, mm-hmm. and I quickly switched over and decided what I wanted to do was work with brain-injured children. So I got my degree in speech pathology and mm-hmm. audiology, uh, which meant that I would be able to work with, with uh, children who had head trauma and uh, other kinds of of brain injuries. And that's what I did. Mm-hmm. For what? I mean, you, you actually pursued that career. I actually did. Um, I was married at 19 uh, and then graduated from, from college, actually, after I'd, I'd married. And my first year post-graduation, uh, uh, I worked. It was in a public school system, but I worked with the, the children with disabilities. And um, I did that for a year. And then that summer, um, I, I actually didn't have the education courses, so I was on an emergency certificate, it was mm-hmm. called. And I went back to graduate school and took a couple of courses in education and said, I don't think this is going to work out for me. Mm. And I was pregnant with my first baby. So I had a baby uh, and stayed home for a couple of years. And I was really casting about thinking, what am I going to do? Um, and uh, my husband's view of it was, stay home. Uh, 
So, so I mean, and that's and that's perfectly reasonable. Teaching special ed is not an easy job. It is no walk in the park. Um, there's there's a lot of rules, a lot of regulations. There's a lot of restrictions. Probably yeah. less so back in in the early seventies, but um, it's a taxing job. Um, uh, bless all of our special ed teachers out there because there's a lot of them and they work extremely hard. Um, but she says on video that she it was a voluntary thing for her that she just didn't feel that the job was right for her. So why is she lying about this? She's clearly lying about this. I don't know. I've been, (laughs) I have to tell you this. You'll, you'll, you'll laugh at this and your listeners will laugh at this. I have been told by my campaign manager that I should not comment on the situation because it deals with a woman and pregnancy issues. And I'm not a woman Mm -hmm. and I've never been in that position. And I certainly don't want to say that those issues don't exist because I know they do exist. It's absolutely legitimate. Um, but we also get into one of those areas that if she's lying about this, okay. does that leave, does that legit delegitimize yes. all the other people who have valid concerns? It does. Um, and, and so that, that is another troubling aspect to this. I um, completely agree with what you're saying. And it's perfectly okay for you to bring up this video where she's saying that because she's clearly lying now. And absolutely, it delegitimizes women that really do have to deal with that. And, I, and honestly, I think the reality is that, that um, what she has said about it uh, on video the last couple of days does not sound credible. I mean, she kind of sounds like she's caught, got caught in a lie and doesn't know how to get out of it. Um, and I think it's going to hurt her campaign um, because, yeah. you know, I, I have to say, by contrast, um, the, the one thing that um, people say who really don't even agree with Bernie is that they say, at least I know he's telling me the truth as he sees it. My dad is an Air Force guy and a lifelong Republican. I grew up in a Reagan Republican household. Um, he, he told me that, uh, he would have voted for Bernie Sanders. He thinks Trump is an absolute balloon. Um, he tries not to pay attention to him, but he wasn't going to vote for Hillary Clinton. And that's a story that I have heard over and over and over again from from people that I know on the conservative side of things. Look, I've heard it from from Democrats. I mean, she didn't appeal to, I'd say 60% of the Democratic base. Yeah, I honestly hope we just don't get put in that situation again. I, I think um, when when the DNC tries to artificially manipulate um, yeah. the the primary process, they're gonna they're gonna end up like you know, boy, you guys did not learn your lesson the first time around, did you? Yeah. Um, and and I think I think our, I think I think the, the process just has to be honest and transparent all the way through without thumbs on the scale. You know, and I'll, I'll right. be honest with you, if it's a, if it's an honest and transparent process all the way through and Bernie doesn't get the nomination, then, hey, he doesn't get the nomination. Right. Um, I, I don't think that that'll happen. I think if the, pre- the process is honest and transparent, that he will get the nomination. But I would accept that he would did not get it if I knew that it was not fixed all the way through. I just don't have any confidence that it's not going to be fixed. <laughs> I completely agree with you. Um, it's one thing to put your thumb on the scale. It's nothing to just let the process go through and it turns out differently. I don't think a lot of people trust the, the process anymore for these reasons. And let me also add this. Uh, when I first heard about Elizabeth Warren's situation about claiming that she was a woman of color or a, a American Native American, 
I was offended, but I thought, okay, so maybe she didn't know. Like, so I, I did a little bit of that justification in my head. But when I saw that Harvard was touting her as their first woman of color hire and that she had continued on that direction, it became right. very, very disqualifying for me because I don't, I, I think it's gross. I think you're clearly a white woman of privilege and this flies in the face about what those those uh, <clears throat> those rules are about, you know? You're taking advantage of a situation yeah. to further your career and you're doing it at yep. the expense of an actual Native American that m- might have gotten into that position. Yeah, so, yeah, it, it, it's true. I mean, my, my kids are, um, their, their mother is half Panamanian um, and so my kids are technically a, a quarter Panamanian, um, uh, Latino, uh, and and there's no way that uh, they would be able to um, move right. forward because you know we in my my household is not Latino culture. Um, respect all cultures, but I mean, but we're white culture in my house household, yeah. and and um, I would I would not at all feel comfortable with either of my kids moving forward and saying, "Hey, I'm quarter Panamanian," and so I'm going to use that to, you know, get advantages. That would not be right at all. No, and they have a more of a claim to do that than Elizabeth Warren does. That's that's the irony here. So, uh, and I also think it's a gift wrapped present to the GOP. I think I think you're naive if you think they're not going to attack her on this, and there's really no defense because if you are a leftist and you do believe in affirmative action and you do believe in egalitarianism and all of these things, you're going to have a hard time defending that position because it's really not defensible. Well, it's, it's, you know, again, it's a matter of integrity. I always, I always believe that if you take the moral high ground, you're not necessarily going to win all the time because, you know, people play underhanded games frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you continue to take the moral high ground, Eventually, you will come out on top. But if you don't, and if you uh, move forward with lacking integrity or feeling like it's okay to fudge things around the corner, eventually that's going to catch up with you. Yeah, I agree. Um, and and I think I think that will be the case with Elizabeth Warren. I think if she ends up being the nominee, which you know I have to say it seems like the DNC is probably going to push that. Yeah. Um, but if she ends up being the, 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 the nominee. There's going to be so much material there for the GOP to go after. I'm so worried about this. I'm very worried about it. Yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, On to better subjects, though. Thank you for your opinion on that, because I was curious. Uh, So today is also Mental Health Awareness Day, and I think mental health is uh, something we really need to start looking at in the country. Do you have any part of your platform that is dedicated to looking at mental health issues um, I do not have a specific part of my platform that identifies um, this is my mental health platform, right. but I do um, just like Medicare for uh, Medicare for all wraps up um, mental health as mm-hmm. comprehensive medical mm-hmm. services. I absolutely believe the same thing. Um, I think um, mental health uh, needs to be treated like um, any other um, physical uh, affliction. Um, uh, or anything that needs to be worked through, worked through by medical professionals. Um, so I am supportive of Medicare for all um, in in terms of its all encompassing uh, aspects of uh, physical and mental health. So uh, yes, I'm I'm very supportive of um, uh, increased mental health services. Uh, you know, I I think um, we would not be we cannot tackle homelessness um, until we tackle mental health. Um, 100% agree. Um, I, I, I worry that um, mental health 
gets used um, as a diversion from dealing with gun violence issues. Um, But I do believe that there's an aspect of mental health in gun violence issues as well, Mm -hmm. Um, that if we can get, you know, kids the counseling that they need. Um, A lot of kids these days are dealing with trauma, trauma that is related to poverty, trauma that is related to abuse. And if we're not getting kids those services, um, then, you know, we're we're hurting future future generations and how that may impact um, the gun violence that we're seeing. Um, But mental health health, uh, is, it's kind of this elephant in the room that nobody really wants to deal with. It's one of those invisible issues um, but you know, I have, I, I'm perfectly willing to say that I have, uh, family members who struggle with mental health issues, who have to take medication, who, you know, who, if they don't get their medication, you know, you worry about them. Right. Um, and, well, uh, you know, that most people realize, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it should not be, um, it should not be made into a, a point of shame. I yeah, think, I, I think we have, we stigmatize mental health. And that in itself becomes a barrier to people getting the services, not just accessing them, but just having the services be available, right. um, to have the services be covered by your insurance, which, right. you know, we should just get rid of anyway and go on to national health care. But 100%. Um, well, you know, here's the thing. We have all struggled at some point in time in our lives with some sort of mental issues. I, I don't think that that's a crazy statement to be making. I mean, there's times when, nope. when seeing a therapist is really good for you. It's the healthy thing to do. Absolutely. I got I got divorced um, from my first wife. Uh, uh, we were together 19 years. We got divorced a few years ago. Um, I've got a couple of teenage kids. And mm-hmm. going through all of that, because it was kind of a shock to me, um, it was, it, um, but if I, if I had not had access to a therapist and I saw a therapist for a year. Um, I'm not embarrassed about it at all. Right. You know, I don't, I don't know that. I don't know of seeing that therapist because I was in situational trauma. You know, it was not, right. it's not a, you know, um, I don't have a brain chemistry um, issue, but that situation for me was extremely difficult. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, I can look back at that year of therapy and say, who knows that that saved my life, honestly. Yeah, so, I've definitely gone to therapy one more one or two times in my life and found it very helpful. So I, you know, obviously there's degrees of mental health issues. Uh, sure. You know, not everybody that experiences mental traumas is is a schizophrenic or what have you. So, but I think it is something we need to address, and I think we really need to uh, stop stigmatizing what it is, so that these folks are able to get the help that they need. We need to have a healthier society, and I think you're right. Part of these things are all related to despair. It's uh, lower income, lower income, income inequality, uh, housing issues, not being able to afford going to school. Like there's a, if you look across the board at the increase of health issues, a lot of them are related to, to just being in despair. And I think it's, I mean, suicide is another big one. I think it's something we really need to look at. And addictions, you know, um, I, I am, I'll take this opportunity to say that I am in support of legalizing all drugs. I don't think there should be any drugs. I don't think I don't think heroin should be illegal. I don't think people should use it, but I don't think it should be illegal. I don't. The black market that they create is one aspect of it, um, but also that if we really want to solve addiction troubles, um, one we've got to treat uh, addiction as a disease of despair. And Bernie yes. actually talked a lot about that, um, yeah. which is fantastic. 
Um, but we can't treat it as a criminal issue. We have to treat it as a health issue. Um, or, we're, or we're always going to be dealing with it because people are going to be afraid. People are going to know they're in trouble. They're going to be in trouble with the law, whether it's meth, whether it's heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, going to, they're going to avoid seeking help because they don't want to be labeled as a criminal. And then they're, in, they're going to end up not getting the help that they need. And really, uh, most people, I would say, want it. And then you have the, the issues with people who are really in such dire circumstances that they are saying, you know, if I'm going to be living out on the streets, I might as well be high, you know? Mm-hmm. So what else do we have? What else do we have to offer those people to say, listen, we'd like to help you, um, you know, get off the streets and clean up your life and get off the drugs. But how do we do that when it's a criminal issue rather than a health issue? Yeah, I agree. It should be decriminalized 100%. All drugs should be. And I think part of it, too, is just this is the natural outgrowth of capitalism. You know, why, you tell these folks to get their lives together, but they look at what opportunities they have and how little the pay is, and they think to themselves, screw it, I'm not doing it. So yep. we have yep. to address all these things. I mean, we're in dire straits in this country, and we've been headed in this direction for a good 40 years now. And I think, um, you know, I'm a big supporter of Bernie Sanders for this reason. I think he's the only candidate that's willing to tackle the fundamental um, economic issues that we have in the country. Everybody else wants to give the platonomy a pass. And this is, this is when people ask me, well, what do you, it seems like Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are talking about a lot of the same things. But if you really listen to the way that they're saying it, um, I would say, here's the fundamental difference. Bernie says we need a different economy. We need a different, we need a fundamentally different economy. And that is actually something that Pramila Jayapal said about a year ago mm-hmm. in print. Uh, it's one of the reasons I'm a huge supporter of Pramila Jayapal. Yeah. She says we need a fundamentally different economy. Well, what Elizabeth Warren wants to do is she wants to keep the capitalist structures yeah. in place. Yeah. She just wants, you know, a, a kinder, gentler capitalism. Right. Uh, but there are differences between Elizabeth and myself. Elizabeth, I think, as you know, has said that she is a capitalist through her bones. I'm not. I think the situation today that we face in this country of the greed and the corruption uh, that is existing in Washington, that is existing uh, at the corporate elite level, where you have massive amounts of price fixing going on in the drug companies, where we're the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people, where we have right now as we speak in the fossil fuel industry. You got companies making billions of dollars a year in profit, doing what? Oh, by the way, they're destroying the planet, all right? And I think business as usual and doing it the old fashioned way is not good enough. It's not regulation. Now, what we need is in fact, I don't wanna get people too nervous, we need a political revolution. I am, I believe, the only candidate who's gonna say to the ruling class of this country, the corporate elite, enough, enough with your greed and with your corruption we need real change in this country. Kind of, you know, a capitalism that doesn't impact people quite so negatively, but it still allows the oligarchy to remain in full control. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. and that for me, that's that's the, that's the dividing line right there. I'm, I am I am an anti, I'm an anti-capitalist. I'm not afraid to say it. In fact, you know, when you run a progressive campaign, you're going to have people coming at you saying. Well, you might want to appeal to these voters. You might want to appeal to those voters. So you might want to change your language about this or that or the other. And for me, I'm like, hell no. I'm going to say I'm going to be true to who I am. I'm going to, you know, if my campaign is not successful, at least I will have been honest to the issues. Um, So I'm anti-fascist. I'm anti-racist. I'm actively anti-fascist and anti-racist and anti-capitalist. 
and and I have no problem sharing that wherever it needs yeah, to be shared. I would I would say that I would say that to anybody who asked me. Yeah, you know, and I think also part of the problem is Americans they don't have a total grasp on various economic systems because we are in this country all brainwashed to believe that all free markets are capitalist oh, yeah. markets, right? Which is absolutely fundamentally right. fundamentally not true. Uh, absolutely you know, not true. Yeah, but so when people say I'm capitalist in the United States, a lot of the times they think, well, I'm for free markets, I'm not for command economies, but they don't understand that capitalist markets really aren't free, they're rigged, they're rigged to the capitalists, and that there are sure other are. forms they... of choice economies or free markets that have nothing to do with capitalism, so... It's, we got to educate well, people but, more on these ideas, and I think when they're exposed to more ideas other than what they're told, uh, you know, forever in school, yep. they start to understand that. Absolutely. Well, we, we have a system that capitalizes the profits but socializes the losses yeah. you know so that 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 allows that allows the rich people to keep getting richer yeah. and when the rich people screw up what do they do they say okay taxpayers tax you're going to bail us out which is what we have seen which is what we have seen over and over and over again. it's fundamentally gross because when you think about it here you have all these banksters that imploded the economy and they were rewarded for that because we turned around we bailed them out and they gave themselves fat fucking part of my french bonuses it's it's ridiculous yeah. that this is what we're doing in oh country. it's it's offensive, it is offensive. <laughs> it's, like, absolute, it's absolutely offensive i think iceland yeah. has the right idea they jailed their banksters and that's you know that's what we should have been doing all along so this um so i think it just i think it's good that you say that stuff and, it, and i know i hear you because i say this stuff on twitter sometimes and it shocks people that have never been exposed to these ideas and, right um like for example if i say what if i told you fundamentally that a co-op is a socialist idea and yep. people are like well no it's not well no socialism is when the democracy owns the means of production it's not does not require a strong totalitarian government whatsoever so uh, yep. Anyway, I'm preaching the choir here, but I do think it's important that we talk about these things more and more and we get people um, to sort of look at things a little bit differently and maybe realize that our capitalist system that is a 19th century concept is pretty flawed and it's not really a free market system. Well, it's, you're, you're, you're creating uh, systems and serfdoms is what exactly. you're doing. It's, exactly. uh, it, you know, you don't, you don't have... You don't have a labor force that has any freedom. They're tied to their health insurance. They're yeah. tied to their wages. Yeah. Um, they're they're held down by their wages. And so, for people who think that that this economy, for you know, the vast number of people, uh, represents represents real freedom, I, it's 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 kind of ludicrous. It's, it's I mean, beyond, it's the totally rich, ludicrous. The, the rich have the rich have freedom. Everybody else is saddled with debt. We're all saddled <laughs> with know? debt, and we're all working for them for for very yep. being exploited by them. I don't think that's a controversial statement at this point. I mean, Bezos made I don't more so. money in the last hour than you and I will ever see in a lifetime. It's insane. Yeah, uh, and 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 you know, and relying the the, the amazing um, leap of logic to rely on the very rich to solve yeah. our problems. <sighs> Uh, when you see Bezos throwing people off of, you know, cutting health benefits yeah, I, for his workers, he's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, are you kidding me? Yeah. 
at Whole Foods. He's now decided he's going to do that, which is just grotesque. I hope people listen to this and they stop shopping at Whole Foods and stop buying crap. I've Amazon. never shopped there. I won't shop there because it's too damn expensive. Yeah, I call it Whole Paycheck. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't shop there yep. before it was Amazon. I mean, we have other places you can go to Sprouts, mom and pop stores. There's a whole host of places you can be going instead. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask you about Larson in the sense that he was a super delegate that supported Hillary Clinton back in 2016. And I think this is an important conversation because uh, your state went to Bernie Sanders across the board. So this yes, was, was a guy that was thwarting the will of, of his constituents, more or less, by doing that. Um, and I'll, I'll say, yes, he was, but they all did. They, they all did. did. Yeah. Absolutely. There wasn't um, there wasn't a I don't think that there was a single superdelegate in Washington state. I mean, Jay Inslee was a superdelegate. All of the, you know, our senators, Patty Murray, Maria Cantwell were superdelegates. All of the other Democratic reps were superdelegates. And I, I don't know if there was maybe one or two, but I want to say pretty unanimously across the board, they all um, ended up voting for Hillary Clinton. So infuriating. So, I mean, that yeah. situation has been sort of modified by the Unity Reform Commission. I don't know that it's completely defanged at this point. Um, so, I'm, you know, I'm concerned about what happens at the convention at this point, because I don't think we're going to go into the convention with only two candidates. I think there's going to be more. And I do. Well, here's here's I've, I've done a have done a fair amount of analysis on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I was I was a caucus organizer in Washington state back in 2016. Mm-hmm. And so I understood what the process was to get yourself to be a national delegate. Right. Um, and, and I've also looked at um, uh, the caucus rules for um, the, the state, uh, the various state and the national convention. Uh, and here's here's the reality. If Bernie does not go into Milwaukee next year with better than 50%, the DNC is likely to steal it from him. So, um, you know, he he could go in with 45%. He could be a clear majority. You might not have any of the other candidates with higher than 20%. And so imagine three or four of them go in there. Bernie's got 45%. The rest are are middling around, Mm -hmm. you know, 15 to 18%. And they will wrap up all of those delegates. They will choose whoever they think their most viable candidate is. And they will put all this. And that's where the superdelegates will weigh in. Yeah, because it'll be the second so they, round they, of voting. They'll, they'll weigh in heavily. Yep. And I think it's a problem. It's um, I don't know if you recall back, way back, Henry Wallace, Dr- the Truman during the FDR convention, which was similar in the sense that Henry Wallace won that first round of voting. But the DNC couldn't have Henry Wallace in there anymore because he was way too progressive. And he wanted to extend the New Deal to African-Americans. There's uh, a lot of farmers, rights, workers' rights stuff that he, uh, very progressive guy. So they did all that finagling behind the scenes, had the second vote, and Henry went from winning to losing because that's what they yeah. wanted. And I think it's, uh, yep. I think we should not be naive to party machinations and what, what they are capable of. Um so, so how do we get, so I, I, this is my concern. How do we get to 50%? Because I think we'll have at least three candidates going into the convention. I don't, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I have to believe I'm wrong. I just think that's sort of a reality that we, we need to uh, look at. Well, it really comes down to in every, it's, it's, you know, what Bernie is doing right now with the first four primary states, um, 
mm-hmm. Iowa and New Hampshire and Nevada and South Carolina is you have to have a great ground game in all of those states. Yeah. You have to make sure your message, this is why contributions are, you know, this is actually one of the things that I said about my own campaign right now, because I, I, you know, I'm in a bit of a campaign lull. I have been really promoting people donating to Bernie. Yeah, I've donated too. to him 34 times so far. Wow, <laughs> but I, I, people I, donating. I'm not quite that high, but I'm pretty high. <laughs> I actually have an I've FEC have all the for stickers. the first time in my life. <laughs> But um, but really promoting Bernie's message in those early states, I think he can win three out of four of those states. In fact, I think the mm-hmm. first three states he's going to win. Um, and if he wins those states, uh, then I think he'll win South Carolina. And then it, it could be a juggernaut after that. But those well, early okay. states That's is fair. absolutely critical. Um, so, it, those early states is absolutely critical. But we've got to focus on just as spreading the message as much as possible and making sure people know how to vote, when to vote, and um, understanding that if they don't vote, you know, he could he could get, get it stolen in July in Milwaukee. So do you think if we're able to do that scenario, because I do think you're right, I think he has, um, I think he would get momentum from that, and I do think he has a really good chance of winning all three of those primaries. Do you think that that would narrow the field down to the point where we would only have two candidates going into the convention? Um, I I don't. Uh, hard to say. I I don't know. It's 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 really hard to say. I mean, here's my opinion. I I think um I think after this debate uh, on October fifteenth, mm-hmm. I think you're going to see a lot of the fringe candidates drop out. I don't think that they're going to make it. I think you're going to be down to Bernie, Warren. Um, Biden, Harris, and and Buttigieg. I don't think, um, and and I even, I, you know, from what I have seen about uh, Kamala Harris, I don't know that she's going to last a whole lot longer no. than uh, this debate. This debate either. So you could be that. And and Joe Biden is just, what are you doing? I know. You know, <laughs> please it's a train wreck. sit down. I am. I am. I am worried. Uh, yeah. Not on a Trump level worried, but I am worried if he ever gets the levers of power. Um, yeah. uh, I just, I, I, he's just, he's not. He's, he's listen. Uh, he's, he's served his time. Um, I, I don't want to. He's done, in my opinion, a lot of bad things as a corporate Democrat. Yeah, I, I don't want to slam him. I don't want to slam him too hard. I do want him to sit down. Yeah, um, I so, so I don't know. I mean, in my own. Uh, fantasy laden mind um i i'm looking at maybe down to bernie maybe down to bernie and elizabeth down in 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 milwaukee hmm. um well uh, if that happens so, i think it's, it, i think bernie wins but i i of course i am a believer i believe bernie's gonna win I anyway too. i think he's gonna be our next president i, I think it's gonna be a hard road too. to toe though and you know yep. um, i wanted to bring up briefly tulsi gabbard today also announced that she's considering boycotting the october 15th uh debate because of all the dnc shenanigans and i don't think that's the best choice for her i think we need her on the stage actually bringing up the problems on national television i i i think i i would love it if she does to elizabeth warren what she, well, she did, did to Kamala, Kamala. Harris. <laughs> that that, that is what two of us. you know, she's she's not gonna win the nomination. Um I I you know, 
I know that there are some diehard Tulsi fans um, out there mm-hmm. who will take issue with me um, saying things negatively about her. And, and I really appreciated her um, stance in 2016. Yeah. I do think that um, she has a questionable history on a couple of fronts. Mm-hmm. Um, meeting with Assad is not one of them. Um, I, no, think I think her perspective on I will... Yeah, I think she's yeah. right on Assad. I think she's right on most yeah. of her foreign policy except Modi. Modi is my real beef with yeah. her. I, I and yeah and and I agree. Um, I I'm, I'm glad she has supported um, LGBTQ um, mm-hmm. issues since coming out of her, you know, whatever her cult <laughs> religion was right, growing right. up. Um, but she supported some extremely damaging things to the LGBTQ community. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's going to be a hard thing for her to get over. Um, some some of my uh, LGBTQ friends have forgiven her, and some have not. And so it's a yeah. it's a mixed bag there. Like, um, um, but she's not. I feel like her apology on that accord was pretty sincere, and that she did grow up in an extremely right wing household. But yep. I, can, I do understand why people would be turned off by that. Um, I do think, you know, here's the thing, though. I do think she brings something to the conversation. I don't think she's going to win I, the I do also. I'm, I, yeah, she, she doesn't have a chance of winning the nomination, but I do think that she says some things that need to be said um, about corruption, yeah, uh, about 100%. foreign policy. Um, and, and I think her voice um, from time to time is needed and valuable but yeah. she is not she is not presidential material. Um, yeah. That's that's my opinion of it. And I know that's okay. going to piss a number of people off, but that's that's my position. I've, okay, no, I, um, I get that. I get you know, like I don't agree with every candidate across the board, but I would take Tulsi over a vast majority of the field. Let me let me say that, even with the Modi crap. Oh, I was going to say, uh, you know, I was I was very supportive of her coming out of 2016. I actually administer on Facebook. I'm the sole administer. I grabbed at Sanders uh, uh, Sanders Gabbard. Oh, yeah. so I I I I actually am the admin for at Sanders Gabbard okay. on Facebook, and I just haven't posted anything there for a long time because, you know, she she has become not somebody that I can uh, fully support, although I think she's got some valuable things to say. I think that's a fair enough position. Um, I'm just I'm just curious to know how this DNC thing turns out, because she has been the one candidate that has been willing to speak to internal party corruption, internal machinations. You know, I had an opportunity to interview her three weeks ago, and I asked her specifically about okay. DNC corruption and... Um, I thought her answer was pretty spot on. She talked about how we need to do more infiltration of the party itself. Like we started that process in 2016, but it's not been completed yet. I think it's important. Again, we look forward and see how can we continue to make things better. Transparency, accountability, and always remembering uh, who is at the heart of our democracy and our elections. It's the people. We've got to make sure that they have faith that the elections are working for them. Tulsi, can I ask an add-on question to that? Sure. I was just at the DNC meeting last week covering that, and I witnessed some of the lack of transparency that you're bringing up. Uh, one of the things that I noticed was that Tom Perez has uh, 75 at-large delegates that he appoints, and he was able to pull these out as proxy votes when he needed to to change the outcome of a vote. Um, so what do we need to do to fix this? Because obviously the, UR- the URC did not fix More it. More people need to get involved in the process to be involved in those rule changes in the committee. 
you know, we, we saw some changes come about post 2016 because you had a lot of folks who were really frustrated and angry about what happened and they wanted to do something instructive about it. They ran for those local delegate positions. They ran for those positions on the state central committees. They ran for those national delegate positions so that they could have a seat at the table and bring about those changes and those reforms. That's what needs to happen. I, I've got a I've got a story to tell you if you okay. have a minute. Um, I do because uh, I like I said I I am on the state committee for Washington. Uh, I was elected to represent uh, my county back in 2016. Um, in 2018, I was elected to represent my legislative district. So I am currently a member of the state central committee. Um, and there are DNC elections coming up um, across the country yeah. in January of 2020. Uh, they will be, you know, so we're looking at about four months out now from DNC elections. Um, I don't know if you have heard this story, um, but I have been suspended from the state committee. No, um, I I had locally a code of conduct violation. The state um, implemented, we implemented, and I was actually part of this, um, basically a code of conduct um, that was intended to ensure that meetings uh, and where the state party or your local parties were doing business, those were safe spaces. Um, and so on its face, uh, it's good that we have a code of conduct. Mm -hmm. um, that code of conduct was weaponized against me by people, people in our district who um, are still – you know, it's no secret to say that we've still got a big Hillary-Bernie divide in the Democratic Party. Um, yeah. I'm obviously on the inside of it. And um, I was a, an organizer in 2016, and I got a lot of people. I don't know if you have something similar to a precinct committee officer in California, but basically all your legislative districts are divided up into precincts, mm -hmm. and it's the grassroots level um, uh, position, elected position in the Democratic Party. Um, well, we had about 30 PCOs in my legislative district, and we had 160 available spots, and I did so much organizing that we essentially tripled our PCO numbers, and that was a lot of burning people. That was a lot of Bernie people coming into our legislative district, and we did that all across the state. So there are a number of Bernie people now sitting on the state committee because of the organizing that we did in 2016. Um, and there is a lot of resentment among the Hillary people in our local party and mm -hmm. across the state. Um, and they essentially think that we are interlopers and usurpers and that it's not their party, that we're trying to take the party away from them, um, which, you know, I, I, I don't have no problem with that assessment. I've always been very upfront that my 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 goal as a committee member, as a member of the Democratic Party, is to change the party. If the party cannot be changed, I mean, if it really comes down to the party puts up so much establishment resistance that it cannot be changed, I'm not hanging out. Um I will go. I will go do other things with my activism, but I am still at this. You know, I am trying to change the party. So what happened was there was a couple of incidents that happened. Uh, one last year, where a, a member of the local party, I, I don't stand for the flag salute. Um, I have. I when we invaded Iraq, I've been an anti-war activist my my entire adult life. Um, I started protesting war when we invaded Iraq back in 1990 under false pretenses. Um, but I don't stand for the flag since we invaded Iraq the second time around under Bush. Um, I have simply chosen not to honor that as an atheist. I don't like saying under God. Um, 
So I sat for the flag, and then Colin Kaepernick uh, started his movement. Uh, I took a knee. Um, and so now I take a knee when people are saying pledge in public. Well, last year, um, a member of the local party took issue with me doing that. And during the pledge, while I was sitting, um, he turned around, turned his back to the flag, uh, folded his arms and stared me down for the whole of the pledge. So I let it go. And after the meeting, as the meeting was letting out, um, he was walking past me. I leaned over to him and I said, hey, Michael, uh, didn't you know it's disrespectful to turn your back to the flag when the pledge is being said? And he and so I was being I was being snarky. And so he went into me. He called me. Yeah, it's it is. Well, that's the thing is it's true. Yeah, and so he went into me, he called me obnoxious, called me an asshole. We exchanged a couple of fuck yous. Um, I, um, I, I told him to fuck off with his Nazi bullshit <laughs> because if you go, if you go back to the ruling, there's actually a Supreme Court ruling from 19, uh, 1943, West Virginia versus Barnett, mm-hmm. where the Jehovah's Witnesses petitioned for their right not to have to stand for the flag. Of course, we were fighting the Nazis oh, at the time. Okay. The Supreme, yeah, and the Supreme Court said, you know what? Yeah, we can't compel people to uh, stand or pledge allegiance to this symbolism. They actually said, uh, in in not using these words, but that's a little bit too Nazi, and these are the people we're trying to fight. Mm. So when I said, fuck off with your Nazi bullshit, you know, I told him the Supreme Court says I don't have to. Now, I don't stand for the flag for other reasons, but I also have the constitutional right not to. Yes. So. There was a there was a little bit of a blow up. There was no physical anything. It was just a couple of guys yelling "fuck you" at each other, and then it was over. Um, and there was a second incident um, where uh, there was a, a Confederate flag hanging off the back of a truck. You know how people like to put their U.S. flags on the back of the pole and drive around. Well, this was parked in front of an elementary school right down the street from my daughter's high school. Mm. And um, I dropped my daughter off to school. I saw the flag. Um, and I, you know, I contacted the high school principal. I said, you know, one of your, because my daughter identified that it was a high school senior. I said, one of your seniors is driving around with a Confederate flag on the back of the truck. They said, well, there's nothing we can do about it if, um, it's not parked on school property, and it wasn't. It was parked on the street. So a week later, I saw it still there, parked in front of the elementary school. I pulled over my car. I took out a box cutter. I cut the flag off, and I shredded it, and I threw it, and I threw it in the back of, of this kid's pickup truck. And I live-streamed it to Facebook. <laughs> so a lot of people a lot of people saw me doing that. Now, it's a controversial issue. Um, there were a number of people who took issue with me doing it. They said, that's vandalism. You know, you're destroying personal property. You're, you know, you're stomping on people's free speech rights. And my opinion of that was, well, I'm not going to have a symbol of hate and genocide and bigotry. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're on a pathway where kids got to walk to school. Yeah. I would not go on to somebody's personal property to do this, but parked right. out on the street. No, I'm, I'm going to cut that down. So, Based on those two incidents and the fact that the Hillary people in my legislative district really just do not like me because I'm very outspoken um, about progressive policies, um, they filed a code of conduct complaint and basically said that my behavior was unbecoming of uh, somebody who is representing the state party. And so I went, you know, I was informed by the state party that this code of conduct had been filed. And my response to them was, 
if this is about the flag issue, because they didn't tell me what it was about, they just said a complaint had been filed. I said, if this is about the flag issue, not only do I not apologize, I will do it again. Mm-hmm. So if you want to go, if you want to go after me about cutting down a Confederate flag, you do your best. Go ahead. So there was a six-month-long investigative process, or six months, yeah, it was not maybe four-month-long investigative process. And because they knew that it was going to look really bad if they went after me on the Confederate flag issue, that exactly. they they decided to translate. Uh, turn that into um, I harass and intimidate and bully my political opponents. Now, they showed me, they said they had 25 pages of screenshots. We're talking about screenshots, stuff that may have been said on Facebook. um, And the only thing that I have ever done that has threatened violence is is I have used a hashtag punch Nazis. (laughs) (laughs) I said, really? You're really going to go after me because I did hashtag bunch Nazis? That's crazy. Um, but they ended up they ended up suspending me. Now, really where this comes from is that I challenged our party chair back in January. Mm-hmm. Um, I was floor nominated. Um, I, uh, I actually had run a campaign back in November. The election was in January, but I had started a campaign to run for party chair. And a lot of my allies on the state committee started getting threats that if they were supporting me, they were going to get unseated. I didn't want these good progressives to get unseated from the state committee, so I withdrew my campaign. But I did end up getting floor nominated. I accepted the floor nomination, and I gave a good five-minute speech on how corrupt our state party was and how corrupt our elected officials were. So that's really where all this comes from. I'm an outspoken progressive voice. Um, I My... um, you know, I, I say what I think, I challenge power, and I was they knew that I was not going to be voting for the current DNC members who will be up for re-election in January. In fact, two of the DNC members who sit um, on the executive committee of the Washington State Democratic Party mm-hmm. were the two people who were in charge of the investigation against me. Wow. <laughs> so they... So they made up, they, they, they verifiably lied, one of the DNC members verifiably lied, the state party has, chair has verifiably lied about things, but how do you get press on that? You know, I mean, there's, nobody, nobody cares. Nobody cares so about yeah. Nope. So what they've done is they have suspended me for six months, and I now don't get to vote on the upcoming DNC elections. Um, I, I am I am not allowed to be at the party meeting where they are going to vote on the new DNC members. So my opinion of that is that the two DNC members who knew I wasn't going to vote for them, and not only that, I'm an organizer, and so I was going to organize people to run against them, um, and I was going to I was going to whip votes for people um, who were opposing them, right. and they've essentially said I'm not allowed to show up at party meetings now until my suspension will end in February. But at that point, the DNC election will will have passed, so they have shut me down completely out of the state party, um, and uh, it's all you know. It's all based on bullshit, yeah. <laughs> you know. Party politics are very dirty and power isn't going to concede. Um, I'm sorry to hear that. Yep. That's, that's pretty sucky. Um, well, we have to get more people involved on the progressive. We need to get more progressives involved on the state parties and every central committee, I think. Absolutely. we need. That's the only way to get rid of these shenanigans because 
time and time again, I hear these state level shenanigans and it's, it's, you know, it's remarkable that the party that is, you know, publicly arguing for less voter suppression, more democracy, more egalitarianism, et cetera, et cetera, just doesn't seem to want to really stand for those ideals when it comes to their actions. And uh, it's very frustrating. Well, the, the, the state, the, the Washington State Democratic Party is, is right now, it's nothing more than an arm of the DNC. Um, and, uh, yeah. you know, I've always said that, that the party politics is, is essentially money laundering for corporate candidates. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's really all it amounts to. But I do want to say also that if people want it, I, there, there are avenues, there is opportunity um, upcoming and, and is the third week of May here in Washington in, in 2020 is when our filing week is for, so I will be filing officially as a candidate for okay. Congressional District 2. Um, but that is also when these precinct committee officers file for elective office. And mm-hmm. so I am still putting out the message that if we want to control if progressives want to control the state party and they want to take the power that is available to them, they have to file for this PCO office because that is the grassroots. That is, you know, you, you get your progressives in at the precinct level and they're going to elect your party chairs, uh, your local party chairs and your local state committee members. And then those local state committee members will elect your uh, state party chair. But unless you have people on the ground level willing to you know, accept responsibility for that precinct level elected office, you are not going to change things up at the top. It has to go through that process. But it's completely available for us to take over if we had enough people who were willing to do it. I agree. So let's get that done. Um, Jason, if people want to follow you on Twitter, what is your Twitter handle? I am call for Congress at call for Congress. And it is the letters F-O-R. It is not the number. And it's the same thing on Instagram. Instagram is Call for Congress. Uh, Facebook is Call for Congress. And my website is callforcongress.com. And will you be taking donations on your website now or not until a couple months from now? Uh, My my donation site is active. And if I could do a plug for myself and other progressive candidates, because, you know, this really is this really is a not me us. There is a wave of progressive candidates all across this country. I'm talking with people in New York and Florida and Illinois and Maryland, California. And and so many people are running progressive campaigns right now. I am incredibly inspired. But I want your listeners to know that what really keeps a progressive campaign like mine going is not you giving me 100 bucks or 200 bucks um, or even 50 bucks. It is are you able to kick in $10 a month and keep that sustained? Can you kick in $10 a month for the next year? You know, that is something that is going to help a progressive campaign. So I don't know if people are thinking about donating and say, you know, all I can afford is a little bit. That's fine. We don't want more. In fact, that's grassroots right there. Um, So if you can afford $5, $10, $27 a month for, for a year, that will sustain the campaign. If I can, if I can get ten thousand people to give me five dollars a month, that is plenty of money for me to take on the establishment. I don't think people realize that that it can take. It can be just a little bit of money, but consistently, and a lot of people giving it. Yep. Hundred percent. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show. It was great talking with you. Thank and- you very much. 